what are some of the things that you most want to see in life? I'm talking about the things that you would trade almost anything to get. Okay, maybe it's a championship for your favorite sports team. You know, if you're a Grizzlies fan, you'd love to see that first banner. Better, I think, to see the Lakers get their 18th. (laughs) Maybe you want to see a healthier image of yourself. Maybe you hope to see that diploma you've been working toward. Maybe you want to see a raise or retirement. Maybe you want to see a spouse coming down the aisle or your first child. What is it you most want to see? Something you would trade almost anything for. One of the things I most want to see, I would trade almost anything for it. I want to see my kids grow up. I want to see them go to school. I want to see them make professions of faith. I want to see them enter the vocation. I want to see them walking down the aisle to a godly spouse. I want to see them have and raise their own kids. I want to see my kids grow up. My biological father passed away when I was 12. It's given me, I think, as a gift from God, an acute awareness of the brevity of life. There's some gifts that we have that are fragile, like the gift of being a father. Now, I, don't, I wouldn't say I have anxiety about dying. I don't stress about my health. Certainly I have anxiety about other things. I have this, like, I would describe as higher than normal sadness about the prospect of dying because it means leaving my family. So when we watch a movie like, maybe you've seen Encanto, you know, (laughs) the dad gives himself, I'm like, I'm undone. (laughs) We watched Pixar's Onward like a month ago, if you've seen that, Chris Pratt's in it. A movie like that just destroys me. (laughs) You know, (laughs) by the end of it, I'm crying, I'm I'm holding my kids tight, I'm Googling trying to figure out where I can buy a wizard staff. (laughs) Oh, if you've seen the movie, the father dies. He has two young boys. He leaves them this uh, wizard staff and a spell so they can bring it back to life for 24 hours. I want to see my kids grow up. I want to see them live life. Now, here's the reality. There are some things that I can do to try to elongate my life. I try to eat well. I have aspirations to start working out again at some point. <laughs> Keep me accountable. I do my annual checkups. I do what I need to do. But the preservation of my life is really in the hands of the Lord. You see, to see what I want to see, I need God to give me the gift of life. The gift of ongoing life. Right? To see my kids growing up would be a wonderful gift. To see any of the things that you would love to see. One sight that surpasses them all. Right? More satisfying than if everything on your list was checked a million times over. For the Christian, this should be at the top of our list. What we most want to see is the kingdom of God in its fullness. Right? To actually behold our Savior with our eyes. To see him face to face. Now Jesus in the text today assumes, I think, that our greatest desire is to see the kingdom of God. It's at least what we should most want to see. But unlike other pursuits in this life... It's not something that we can attain by our efforts. It's not even something that we participate in. You see, to see the kingdom of God, to enter it, to experience the embrace of its king, God must do something for us that we cannot do for ourselves. He must give us the gift of life. Not just 
not preserve our life. We need him to give life where there is none. We need divine intervention. In order to see for the first time, we need to live. In order to live, we need God to act. John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. If you are able, I will invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word. There was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform these signs you do unless God were with him. Jesus replied, Truly, God, how can anyone be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked him. Can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh. Whatever is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you that you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases and you hear its sound. But you don't know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can these things be, asked Nicodemus. Are you a teacher of Israel and don't know these things, Jesus replied. Truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but you do not accept our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Amen. You can be seated. Our big idea this morning... A person must be born again to enter the kingdom. A person must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. A person must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. Now this big idea assumes a couple things. One, that we don't have life. That's why we need to be born again. And that we need life to enter the kingdom of God. Now we'll break the text down into three different headings, each under... Um, life. We're going to consider life. First, we'll consider why we need life. Next, we'll consider who gives new life. And lastly, how we learn about this life. So looking at the text under these headings, why we need life, who gives new life, and then we'll consider how we learn about this new life. First, why we need life. Now, to set the stage for the text, if you were here last week, you'll recall that Jesus is in Jerusalem for Passover week. Jesus goes to the temple, of course, and upon seeing the temple, his father's house turned into a business house that is a market and a bank. Jesus clears it out. Right? He goes Monday night raw. He's got a whip in one hand. He's flipping tables over in the other, pouring out money. Now, Jesus' actions, we can understand were not exactly welcomed. They also weren't understood. They should have seen what Jesus was doing as a type of sign in fulfillment of Malachi chapter 3 that God himself had visited the temple to restore, to purify, that the people of God might be able to worship him in righteousness. Now they don't understand, so they ask him for a sign. Verse 18, Jesus says the only sign that he's going to give them is they'll destroy this temple, he'll restore it, he'll raise it back up. Then this section ends with verse 23. It says that many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing, but Jesus doesn't entrust himself to them. And it's because he knows them all. 
because he knows what's in them. It doesn't seem like this group has saving faith. I think we're to believe that Jesus looks inside them and he doesn't see life. Okay, so perhaps they have a partial profession. Perhaps they're curious. Maybe there's a movement toward the light. Maybe they're near the kingdom like the scribe in Mark chapter 12, but they're not in it yet. Okay, so there are these people who, in some sense, are believing some things about the name of Jesus. They've not believed in him quite yet, not in a saving way. Jesus looks in them, and I think he doesn't see light, or, or he doesn't see life. Enter Nicodemus. I think we're to take him as being amongst this group. Okay, as we'll see, he's seen or heard about the signs of Jesus. He knows or believes some things that are right about Jesus, but it's not quite enough. His profession is lacking. Most importantly, he doesn't have the life he needs to enter the kingdom of God. And so Jesus is going to tell him about his problem life and then how we can learn about this life. So chapter 3, beginning there in verse 1, there was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him, that is Jesus, he came to Jesus at night. Now the first thing we notice about Nicodemus, other than his titles, is he snuck around at night, you know. He's trying to be, I think, discreet. He doesn't want anybody to know that he's meeting with Jesus. You see, he, more than most in Israel, as one, of the, as one of the religious leaders on the Sanhedrin, he knows that Jesus and the leaders are on a collision course. They will indeed destroy his body, but can Jesus really raise it up? You see, Nicodemus stands to lose a lot, but he thinks he might be able to gain more in Christ. So he's curious. He goes to him in the, to Jesus in the cover of darkness. Now, if you were to look at night, if you just search night in your Bible app, in the book of John, it's almost always negative. I'll just give you one example. John 13, 30. This is as soon as Judas uh, leaves the table, the Lord's Supper, to betray Jesus. There's this note. John adds this editorial note. He wants us to know, and it was night. Now, night is negative in the book of John because of its association with darkness, which is clearly negative in John. You'll recall that from the prologue. Jesus is going to tell Nicodemus this next time we're in John. John 19 and 20. People loved darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. So remember, John loves using kind of what seems to be mundane. And, but it's not just the natural darkness of night, it's the spiritual darkness of death. But it seems like a moth to the flame, Nicodemus is being drawn to Jesus. We're, giving, we're being given this picture of him coming out of the darkness as he's approaching the light of the world. Right, he comes now in secret, but at the end of John, John 19, after Jesus is brutally killed, Nicodemus is going to be there wrapping and anointing the body of Jesus Christ to prepare him for burial. So Nicodemus goes to Christ in curiosity. Not just ordinary curiosity, you know, scrolling through TikTok or something. We're talking about curiosity fueled by the longing of the soul. He thinks this might be the one, such that he's worth willing to risk his reputation. You see, like many in John chapter 1, Nicodemus has come to see. His journey with Jesus or to Jesus begins with the willingness to ask questions and to listen. 
And I'll say this to anyone here, if you're visiting us this morning and you understand yourself to not be a Christian, we want courage, right, to visit a church when you're not a Christian, to learn about Jesus Christ. We would encourage you to keep going to Jesus, to keep coming to see. Read through the book of John this week. Stay after service and talk with us. We are here because we love talking about Jesus. So we're encouraged that you're here. We recognize that it might not be a comfortable or easy thing, but perhaps you, like Nicodemus, you're being drawn out of the darkness into the light. Our prayer for you is that the Spirit would give you life. So Nicodemus goes to Jesus in the cover of night, and then he says in verse 2, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform these signs you do unless God were with them. Okay, Nicodemus doesn't ask a question, but he's asking a question, right? <laughs> he wants to know who are you, right? Like, who, we can tell you've come from God. No one could perform these signs unless God were with The things that Nicodemus says about Jesus are true. They're all true things. But his profession doesn't go far enough. It's not a saving confession. And you can even see a little bit of irony, I think. Nicodemus is speaking better than he knows, like Jesus is not just a teacher of Israel. He's not just a rabbi. He is the word of God enfleshed, right? The revealer and the revelation of God. He's not just come from God in the sense that heaven has called him. He has come from heaven, right? And God is indeed with him more than Nicodemus realizes. John shows us in John chapter 1 that the spirit rests and remains on him. Okay, but the, God is not just even with him in that sense. He himself is God the Son incarnate. He was there in the beginning with God. So Nicodemus thinks he knows a little bit about Jesus, and he really does. But we see his confession. It's not a saving confession. He needs to believe in more than Jesus the teacher. He needs to believe in Jesus the Savior. Right? The Lamb who came to Take away the sins of the world, the physician who gives life to the dead. Okay, so Nicodemus has right things to say about Jesus, but he doesn't fully understand. It's because there's a more fundamental problem. He can't see. His picture of Christ is shrouded in darkness. So Nicodemus is wondering, who are you? Jesus replies, verse 3, Truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Okay, now on the surface, it looks like Nicodemus is saying one thing, and then Jesus is just responding with something totally different. <laughs> you do this in a normal conversation, it would be very annoying. But what Jesus is doing is he's really getting to the heart of the issue. Okay, Nicodemus thinks he knows something about Jesus. We know you're a teacher from God. You couldn't do these things unless God were with you. Jesus is flipping it on its head. Unless you're born again, you can't know. You can't see. Like you think you know because you've seen some things. You can't actually see until you're born again. You need new life. If a person is going to see the kingdom, if they're going to really know and experience who Jesus is in a saving way, they need to be born again. Why? Paul uses similar language to new birth in Ephesians chapter 2. There in verse 1 he says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of the world, according to the ruler of the power. In verse 4, but God. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ. 
even though we were dead in trespasses, right? It is by grace you are saved. You see, we need to be born again or someone needs to be born again because they're dead. You need to be born to live. Now, don't miss this. Who's Jesus talking to? Nicodemus. He's not talking to the promiscuous woman at the well in John chapter 4. He's not talking to someone like a thieving and traitorous Zacchaeus. He's talking to Nicodemus, the Jew, born in Israel, circumcised on the eighth day, a Bible-believing Pharisee, serious about the Torah and the purity laws, serious about the tradition of the elders. He himself is a leader and a teacher. He is at the top of the religious food chain. Right? His resume stacks against the rest. If anyone is going to see the kingdom of God, you would think he would be in line first. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. If anyone, Nicodemus included, is going to see the kingdom of God, they need to be born again. If Nicodemus needs to be born, what do you think that means for us? And you see, Jesus isn't saying, Nicodemus, or you here at NBC, you just need to do more of this. You need to change your thinking about that. You're doing well in like seven of the commandments, but in three of them, we could do a little bit more work. No, you are dead and you need life. You need to be born a second time. You see, our corruption because of sin is so comprehensive. We can't do anything about it. Our efforts to give us, right? We're not coming out of the grave. We're forcing ourselves deeper in. When Jesus says that we need to be born again, he's not talking about moral modification or religious ritual. He's talking about a total transformation. Calvin puts it this way, the other John. The better John, (laughs) except for baptism. He says, Calvin puts it this way, by the term born again, he means not the amendment of a part, but the renewal of the whole nature. You see, the whole man or the woman has been corrupted by sin. We don't need to change this part of us. The whole of us needs to be made new if we are to see the kingdom of God. This, of course, is not just Nicodemus' problem. It is the human condition that we were born into sin. We are dead because of our sin. We need life. But as we are about to see, it's not something that we can do for ourselves. It's not something we can work towards. It has to come from the outside. We need divine intervention. We need life. So this is the problem. gives it to us, the Holy Spirit. Okay, we come to our second point. How do we get this life? Nicodemus responds to Jesus saying, Jesus saying that we need to be born again. Verse 4, how can anyone be born when he is old? Can he enter his mother's to Nicodemus? He at least heard the words born again. (laughs) That's about it. He doesn't understand. Of course, neither would we apart from the Spirit's illumination. It's similar. It's a bit like the Jews saying it took 46 years to build this temple and you'll destroy it in three days. What, a man needs to enter his mother's womb a second time? How can he do this? You see, there's a dullness of hearing, which further highlights the fact that Nicodemus is spiritually dead and he needs life. And so Jesus clarifies, verse 5, Truly, I tell you, unless someone is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Okay, we see verse 5 and 3 are parallel, so it helps us understand. Born of water and spirit sheds light on what it means to be born again. 
Enter helps us see what it means to see. We must be born again, this time by water and spirit, if we are to enter the kingdom of God. Now, what does it mean then to be born of water and spirit? I don't think Jesus is saying water baptism and spirit. I think he's saying the focus is on baptism of the spirit. This entire section is not about what man can do. And in fact, if you look back through and you look at the words of Nicodemus, he uses can over and over again. Can, could, can. How can this happen? How can these things be possible? How can a man enter a womb a second time? Okay, he's a can man. He's wanting to know what can man do? Jesus' focus is instead on what God must do. He gives a clear reference to Ezekiel 36. Pastor Joshua read it in our scripture reading. I'll read it again, a portion of it. Here's God's promise again. Hear it, what we have received already now if we are in Christ. God says, I will also sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. This is all about what God does, right? We don't initiate. We don't even participate. God himself cleanses us of our impurities. He replaces our dead hearts with living hearts. He gives us a new spirit, and he puts his own spirit within us that we might actually walk by his ordinances. You see, God actually fills his own requirements. His Nicodemus is concerned about what man can or must do. How can man be born again? This is not something we do. It is something that God does, and it comes by the Spirit. Luther, Martin Luther put it well when he said that the new birth is what you must become. Nicodemus is dead. He must come to life, and it's something that God alone can do, and he does it by his Spirit. You see, the Spirit makes us into what God requires. We must be born of him to see and to enter the kingdom of God. Now, what is the kingdom of God? It's one of the central themes in all of Scripture. It, especially in the Synoptic Gospels, is maybe the central theme of Jesus' preaching. In the book of John, kingdom of God is only used twice. Only two times. It seems that John, in the place of kingdom, favors the idea of life. Okay? These aren't competing concepts. He's using life in place of kingdom. Okay, even in the prologue, right? Christ is the life of men. Uh, John, Law, John 10, Christ comes to give life and give it abundantly. John 3.16, God gives his son that we might live and not perish. Okay, this is especially clear, clear, I think, in John 17, that the idea of kingdom in its place, John uses life. This is John 17, verse 2 and 3. Jesus is praying to the Father. He's speaking about himself right here. Since you gave him authority so that he may give eternal life to everyone you have given him. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent. Jesus is given authority. Think about how he uses his authority. Even as we consider how someone like Putin is using his authority right now. Jesus doesn't use his authority to take life, but to give it. To give eternal life. Right? He is a good king. The kingdom I should have mentioned, we could think of it as the place and the people that God rules over. And Jesus, what he does with his kingdom, with his authority, is he gives the gift of life that we may enter it. Now, the common thought at the time was that all Jews were in the kingdom. 
right? You're born, you're circumcised, you're good. A Jew is only excluded from the kingdom for serious sin and for apostasy. Now, no doubt today, common thought is everyone is in the kingdom, if there even is such a place. Nicodemus, a circumcised, Torah-believing, law-observing Jew, would have thought himself to be in the kingdom. And what Jesus is saying is that everyone is actually born into this world outside of the kingdom of God. Not a child of God, but a child of the devil, John 8, 44. What people desperately need more than anything else is new life. You see, this new life precedes entering the kingdom. Membership. Now, if you think of the kingdom as a place and the people where God rules, the church isn't the kingdom, but it's, it is the, the greatest manifestation of earth of God's kingdom. We see here especially that Christ is king as we're seeking to live by his rules and his law and to be the kind of people who reflect his image. So we practice regenerate church membership, meaning you believe and then we baptize you and we bring you into membership because it's the same pattern for the kingdom. There's new life and there's entrance. There's new life. We baptize you as a picture of entrance and we bring you in. This is why, as Joshua was saying earlier, um, membership meetings are so important. They're so vital to the life of the church because we're doing kingdom work. As we're thinking about what is the gospel and who are the people of the gospel, the people that God has been given life to. So I would encourage you to take our responsibility seriously to come tonight. So Nicodemus is hearing that he's dead, right? He went to the dentist for like a little toothache. He finds out he's terminally ill. But we need to know that we're dead if we're going to live. This is really the first step of the process. And Jesus explains in verse 6 why it is that we're dead. If you look at verse 6, whatever is born of the flesh is flesh. That is like begets like. You see, our first birth is not only a natural birth, it's a spiritual birth. We are conceived in sin. We were born with the human nature that's turned in on itself and against God. It is corrupted. It is a distortion of what ought to be a reflection of God's character. So to be flesh, as Jesus is using it, is to be spiritually dead, Ephesians 2. It means you can't understand the things of God, 1 Corinthians 2.14. It means you can't submit to the things of God, Romans 8.8. It means you can't inherit the things of God, Galatians 5. 21. Okay, the fallen person, it's not that they're as bad as they could be, but it's that every part of them has been tainted by sin such that they need to be renewed. They need to be made new again by the Spirit. We need or needed God to do something for us that we could not do for ourselves. And it comes by the Spirit. You see, no matter how hard you work, no matter how hard you try or give or reform or recant, you cannot give yourself new birth it has to be a gift it has to come from God last week I referenced Narnia we're gonna go back there again now if you've made it beyond the first book if you've made it to the voyage of the Don Treader uh, third in publication order fifth in kind of book order uh, you're familiar with Eustace, Cla- Eustace Clarence Scrubs he's the cousin of Lucy and Edmund and again if you've read the book you know he's this annoying spoiled, selfish bully. In fact, he knows he's small, but even though he's small, he knows that he can be Edmund Eustace. They're pulled into Narnia. It's a long story, of course, but Eustace becomes a dragon. He, with this kind of dragonish greed, um, stuffs his pockets. He put on, puts on this cursed bracelet. 
he wakes up and finds that he's become a dragon. Eustace didn't become a monster. He had always been a monster. It's just now that his outside finally matches his inside. He's always been this greedy, brutish, selfish monster that destroys others. It's just finally clear for him to see what everyone else has already seen. He's flesh from flesh. And as Eustace comes to find out, there's nothing that he can do to remedy the situation. No matter how hard he tries, no matter how much he desires to become a boy, he cannot do it himself. It has to come from someone else. So after about a week of being a dragon, Aslan the lion comes to him. Now he doesn't know who, he doesn't know who Aslan is. This is the Christ figure. And Eustace is this big dragon. He's rightly terrified of Aslan. Aslan tells him, come with me. He takes him to this pool of water and he tells him to, tells Eustace to undress, that is to remove his scales. He tries ripping off his scales. Every time he does it, he turns back into a dragon. He finally gives up. Aslan tells him it's something that he's going to have to do. He says, let me undress you. Eustace is afraid, but he lies on his back, he says, because of how desperate he is. Aslan took his claws to his dragon skin. He's ripping it out. Eustace says that the first tear hurts so bad. Aslan, of course, rips the scales off. They're next to Eustace. Eustace is able to see what he used to be. Aslan throws him in the pool, and then Eustace says, I started swimming and splashing, and I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why. I had turned into a boy again. Eustace was a monster. Flesh from flesh, he needed to be born again, but it wasn't something he could do for himself. It needed to come from outside of him. It needed to be a gift, and it could only come from one person. It had to be the king. You see, we are born of a flesh nature. If we are to see and enter the kingdom of God, we need to be born again, and it can only come from one person. It has to be God. Right, The one who is fully alive is the one who is able to give us life. Looking at verse 6 again, whatever is born of flesh is flesh. Whatever is born of spirit is spirit. It had to be the spirit. Now, to be clear, as you're looking at verse 6, whatever is flesh is flesh, whatever is spirit is spirit. Jesus is not saying that before we are Christians, we are flesh. We were like material. And then now we're spirit, we're immaterial. Okay? Feel free to poke your neighbor if they're a member. You'll see they're material. They're not they're not literally spirit. What Jesus is saying here is that to flesh is corrupt human nature. Okay, so to be flesh, born of flesh, is to have a corrupt human nature. To be spirit, born of spirit, is to have a renewed human nature made after the image and the likeness. That it's as we have an encounter with the spirit, he not only renews our humanity, but makes it more like God. Cyril of Alexandria put it like this in the 5th century. He says, as we enjoy the one who proceeds from the divine nature substantially, that is, as we have this encounter with the one who is God from God, we are transformed through him and in him into the archetypal beauty. And in this way, we are reborn into newness of life and refashioned into divine sonship. What Cyril said so many years ago is that like begets life. It had to be life to give life. As we have this encounter with the Spirit who is God, we are reborn. We are made new. We are given the gift of divine sonship because the Spirit unites us to the Son and gives us all that is His. You see, brothers and sisters, what we need, God supplies, and it had to be God. Flesh cannot turn itself into spirit. Now, Nicodemus still doesn't understand. So Jesus goes on, verse 7. 
Do not be amazed that I told you you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Now, Nicodemus is not understanding. And so Jesus presses in by giving even harder teaching. <laughs> right? If you didn't understand before, it's not just that we're dead and that we need new life. It's not even just that the Spirit is the one to give the life. It's that the Spirit as God chooses who receives life. We need divine intervention and it comes to us by means of divine freedom. Okay, just as the Father chooses, and this will be clear as we move through the book of John. The Father chooses a people for the Son. The Son lays down his life for the sheep. The Spirit then too moves and acts to give life to those people. The people the Father chose and the Son died for. Now, birth gets at this metaphor. Nobody chooses to be born a first time. Okay? If you think you did, we should chat after service. No one chooses to be born the first time. I hardly had a say in how many kids I have. <laughs> Nobody chooses to be born a second time. You see, it's common, a common misconception to think that we repented and believed and then God gave us new life. Then he gave us new hearts. John, very clearly, chapter 1, verse 13 in the prologue, tells us that the children of God are not born of natural descent. It's not a Jewish thing. Or of the will of flesh. It can't be flesh from flesh. Or of the will of man, but of God. You see, God breathes life into us. He strips us of our scales. He bathes us in the Spirit. Having been made new, we then cling to Jesus by faith. We come to finally see what we could not see before. You see, Jesus is getting at this idea of divine sovereignty again, but this time he's using the metaphor of the wind. The Spirit's movement, it's like the wind. It's mysterious. It's beyond our control. We don't know where it comes from. We don't know where it's going. Now, he doesn't have AccuWeather, okay? Jesus is speaking as it's consistent for his hearers. Not that our weather people are, you know, totally nailing it, but... What Jesus is saying, we don't know where the wind comes from, where it goes, but you hear it. Meaning, we can discern the Spirit by His effects. Okay? We can't predict or manipulate when and in whom the Spirit is going to move. It's not something that we can program. Okay? Not something that we can manipulate or manufacture. The Spirit is going to move as He moves. And yet, we can discern it by its effects. Discern him by his effects. You might think of it kind of like a tornado. You don't control or manipulate a tornado, and yet you know where there's been one. Now, of course, instead of bringing destruction, the Spirit brings the gift of life. Okay? The wind blows where it pleases. We don't know where it comes from. We don't know where it's going. But just as we can hear the wind, we can discern the Spirit's work. We can see when a dragon is turned into a boy, when one of flesh is born of the Spirit. We can see when idolaters become worshipers. When cowards like Nicodemus become courageous, when liars become preachers, when thieves become givers, when terrorists become apostles. And if we were to take an honest assessment of the way that most people, many people do, mission and church today, it's built on the thought that they can manipulate the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, we cannot. Our job is simply to be faithful, to use the means that the Spirit has given us, His Word, prayer, the ordinances, the gathering of the church. He's not ours to control. You see, the doctrine of God's sovereignty over salvation, it ought to be for us a comfort. 
it ought to be a comfort to our souls. Those whom the Spirit gives life to are alive. No matter how much you struggle with doubts, no matter how much you struggle in temptation with sin and even give in to sin, if the Spirit has made you alive, you cannot turn yourself back into flesh. Not any more than you could have turned yourself into spirit the first time. Amen. Salvation is a gift of God from beginning to end. That it's the Spirit's sovereign, free, and powerful work ought to be an encouragement. Our status as God's children, as heirs to the kingdom alongside our big brother and King Jesus, it is secure because we have been sealed by his people of God. It is a comfort. And it also doesn't lead to a type of paralysis. It ought to propel us into mission. Our job is not to turn flesh into spirit. It's not to give new birth. It's not to convince other people that they need to give themselves new birth. It means that we can go into the most unreached places, into the hardest of places, and we can preach with confidence, knowing that the Spirit of God is powerful to give life. And if you don't think so, you ought to just consider your own testimony. When we think about it that way, our job is not that difficult. We are to preach the gospel and to pray that the Spirit gives life, knowing that His job is not hard for Him. We need new life. The Spirit gives us new life. How do we come to know about this life? We come to our last point briefly. How do we come to know about this life? We hear about it from Jesus. It's the testimony of Christ. Verse 9, Nicodemus, still not understanding, says, How can I know these things? You see, Jesus expected some kind of understanding from Nicodemus because this is all consistent with the Old Testament. He should have known that we are dead in our sins. He should have known about man's state to give us life and do so by his spirit. Jesus goes on, Truly, I tell you, we speak about what we know and we testify to what we've seen, but you don't accept our testimony. There's this kind of basic fact to life that we can only speak to with authority and accuracy the things that we know about, the things that we've seen about. Nicodemus doesn't understand the things that Jesus is speaking about, the things that Jesus knows and has seen. Okay, Nicodemus is struggling to understand. Jesus goes on, verse 12. If I've told you about earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? Okay, there's this movement from lesser to greater. If you don't understand these earthly things, how will you understand the heavenly things? Now, verse 12, I think, is difficult to understand. If you're reading the text this week, you probably wrestled with it some as well. What makes the most sense to me is that Jesus is saying Nicodemus doesn't understand earthly things which refer to these spiritual metaphors, couch, these spiritual truths couched in earthly metaphors. Okay? Nicodemus doesn't understand about the new birth, which is analogous to our physical birth. Nicodemus doesn't understand that it comes by the Spirit who moves like the wind. Okay, he's not understanding these spiritual truths that are clothed in earthly metaphors. If you don't understand the basic, basic, you're dead and you need life and new life comes from God, you're not going to be able to understand what comes next. We won't see it this week, but what comes, that he would be lifted up, that we would look upon him. And rather than perishing, rather than dying, life itself would die so that we could live. We have to understand first that we are dead, that we deserve death, that we might understand then the heavenly realities. But what's important, I think, for us to grasp from verse 12 is that there's one place that we go to to hear the words of life, and it's Jesus Christ, right? It's not 
CNN or Fox. It's not the Quran or Confucius. It is Jesus Christ, and he speaks in his word and through his church. It's as Peter says, this is the attitude that we should adopt. What Peter says in John chapter 6, when Jesus asks if they're going to abandon him as well, he says, where else would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And why is it that Jesus alone has the words of eternal life? It's because he speaks to what he has seen. What has Jesus seen? John tells us, John chapter 1, verse 18, the prologue. No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son who is himself God and is at the Father's side. He, that is Jesus, has revealed him. Jesus, as the word of God, is the revelation and the revealer of God. He testifies to what he has seen. And what he has seen, no one else has. Okay? Christ's claim to this type of knowledge is exclusive. This is what he gets at in verse 13. The Son of Man. Okay, this verse 2 I think is difficult to understand. The first part of it. I think we can paraphrase it something like, No one has ascended to heaven, but one has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Okay, regardless of what... um, Jesus is making an exclusive claim to the type of knowledge he has because no one has ever seen God but him. No one has descended from heaven with the knowledge that he has but him. He alone is the bridge between heaven and earth. He alone is Jacob's ladder. He alone is, as he will tell us in John chapter 14, the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him, through knowing him, through seeing him, through believing upon him. Now recall how this interaction begins, Nicodemus confesses that Jesus is a teacher, that he's come from God, that God is with him. Jesus seems, it takes, he takes that confession, he turns it inside out, and he clarifies his identity. Not just from God in the sense that he's called, but actually descended from heaven. Not just a teacher, but the son of man. Jesus is the son of man of Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 9 here at One like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him, pass away. And his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Not just the teacher, but the son of man, the king. The one who comes with the kingdom whose kingdom is without war, without pain, without shame, where there will be no death but only life, and it lasts forever. It is eternal. And brothers and sisters, it comes to us as a gift. God has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. He has made us alive, and he will persevere us in that life until the end. What a day it will be like when we look upon Christ and his kingdom with our eyes. Now, what makes this gift possible, which we'll see next time, it's the fact that God sent his son to die. God so loved the world, he sent his son to die, that we might live. If you're visiting us this morning, you're not a Christian. Perhaps you're visiting, or you're the member of, you're the, not a member, you're the child of a member. We would encourage you to learn from this, just this interaction between Nicodemus and Jesus. It's not even enough to know all the facts. We need to believe upon Jesus the Savior and we need God to give us the gift of life. If you have not put your faith in Jesus, we would encourage you this day 
to look upon him, the one that God gave up that we might live. God, we do thank you for the gift of life that you've given us in your Son and by your Spirit. We thank you that though we who are in Christ were once dead, that because of your rich love and grace and mercy, you have made us alive in Christ, that you have already seated us with him in the heavenly places. We pray that we would continue to cling to your Son by faith. We pray that we would live knowing that we're empowered by your Spirit. We pray for any non-Christian who might be here this morning that they would be cut to the heart knowing that they are dead in their sins, but that they would experience the joy of knowing that Jesus Christ has made a way for them to be alive. We pray that they would experience life today. We praise you. We pray that we would go on this week worshiping you, the God of life. It's in the name of your Son and by your Spirit we pray. Amen. Amen. We continue to worship now by singing the, the hymn, Be a Lamp. Continuing to focus on this desire of ours to see God, knowing that Jesus Christ is our lamp. He is the light of the world. We have seen him, and we long for the day that we will see him in full. So stand with me as we sing.